0: This is Ross Coulthard and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. That UFO Podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes all running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and delighted to have with me on the podcast today retired US Army Colonel, uh, author, lecturer and so much more, Mr John B. Alexander. John, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Andy. Glad to be
0: here. It's very good to finally have you. Uh, The listeners know that we had to reschedule due to my internet being cut off on the evening. So no wacky conspiracies. We think it was just the internet provider going out. But I'm very glad uh, you've given me the time to, to reschedule. So I do appreciate that. Uh, John, a whole lot to, to cover with you in the time we have, and I want to start right back in the beginning. At uh, 1947, I believe you were 10 years old, and in your school, you gave a radio broadcast on UFOs. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that, um, and what was your fascination with the subject at that early age?
1: Well, obviously, that was a little different, and that was an internal school thing, not a external broadcast sort of thing. But I went to a very unusual school that was a derivative of what became the University of Wisconsin at La Crosse. At that time it was a teacher school and they had a school that was, we were basically guinea pigs. So we were the ones that the student teachers got to teach. But because of that, we had access to resources that most don't. And one of them was a broadcast. And periodically, about every week, one of the students would go out and make a broadcast on the topic of their choice. And it was just about that time that UFOs were breaking, and I made that the topic of my choice.
0: What was your fascination on the UFO subject in 1947? What was influencing you?
1: Well, you've got to remember that 47, uh, the whole thing is just starting to hit public consciousness. Uh, the uh, sightings by Ken Arnold and things like that were making the newspapers, and so that. it was making uh, national news uh, at that time. Uh, as I recall, though, that this was a kind of a skeptic thing that said, oh, Skyhook that uh, instead of being real UFOs where we probably went, but this was spawning balloons and it uh, must be balloons that are misidentified and all that. And world, Well, some of it's changed, some of it hasn't. We still get the balloon explanation. And in fact, you know, well, probably 95% of sightings are misidentifications of something with a prosaic response, but they're, Is the residual that makes it really interesting.
0: Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, And was there anything at that early age that you'd had your own experiences with any UFOs, anything to do with the paranormal ghosts? Was it just it was in the news, it was becoming the zeitgeist?
1: Not at that time. Uh, All of that sort of came along much later. Uh, As you know, I did a book called uh, Reality Denied, <clears throat> in which I talked about a whole series of events that have been involved in, both uh, from personal experience, both things we did in the military, got more actively involved, and uh, so a, a lot of weird shit just sort of happens around me.
0: Yeah, it certainly did. And just before we get to that that military point in your life, just to cover the the gap between school age and getting into the military, was there anything that kept your interest in the UFO, the paranormal at that time? Or was it something that waned but came back to you as, as you kind of hit those kind of teenage and teenage years?
1: I, I cannot even begin to address that. I don't know. It wasn't like I had a burning interest. I was interested in... I mean, we were just beginning to talk about space travel and things of that nature. And I did find that uh, fascinating as well. So there was a, you know, like all the real world street component to it, certainly, as well as here was the UFO phenomenon that was just burgeoning at the time.
0: So during that time in the military, let's get to it. Um, you've talked about many experiences, including uh, with life after death and that other at the end. Was there any event or events that convinced you most that there's something that goes on when the physical body dies?
1: Uh, again, that's so broad, I'm not sure how to advance it. Um, uh, well, it's one of these serendipitous events uh, that occurred. Uh, and This goes into the 1970s or thereabouts. I had met uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and she and Raymond Moody were the first ones talking about continuation of consciousness, and what became near death studies. Um, I was getting ready to do a doctorate and had to punch out a, uh, obligatory reports and things. And I got a call one day, I was in my office uh, I was then assigned at uh, Fort McPherson, Georgia in Atlanta. Uh, I got a call, kind of out of the blue, that uh, said, this is Elizabeth's secretary. Well, I had, I guess, precursor. I had sent her a letter because I had attended a workshop called Life, Death, and Transition, uh, which was very unique. We can talk about this, some if you wish, but I had just sent her a note that said, gee, thanks, it was very impactful. And anyway, and this is the days when you could you know, go out and meet people at the gate. And the secretary said, Elizabeth will be passing through tomorrow. She's so got two hours. Uh, can you meet her? Well, of course. And uh, from that, I said, well, I think I'm supposed to ask you a question. And it was, would, would you consider being the head of my doctoral committee? And she said, oh yes. <laughs> just kind of a surprise. And uh, so like said, the rest sort of became history. Um, the dissertation was on the changes that took place in people who attended the Life, Death, and Transition workshops, which was very impactful in that. And of course, they also led, led to some work in what I call the straight world, including the development of Children's Hospice International, which was first addressing pediatric hospice, And then uh, uh, Ken Rang and people were just starting to write books. Uh, of course, Ray Moody's Life After Life had come out. And uh, IONS, the International Association for Near Death Studies, was just coming into existence, and I contacted them and went up and then joined the board and eventually became a president, knowing all of the key people who were working in that area.
0: How was that sort of conversation addressed at that time within the military? You know, even talking about Uh, life after death, the paranormal, was it uh, entertained at all?
1: No, the military, I remember I was... I'm afraid I was assigned in Washington, but the stuff with the ions and all was separate. Now, it was about the same time the remote viewing program was just kind of coming in, into existence. And um, the whole backstory was that uh, I had attended a conference there in the DC area and um, there was a wife of a colonel who was running the conference and said, oh, you must meet, and mentioned another wife, and it turned to be out, uh, Dick Stilwell. Stillwell well, Stilwell was a retired four-star general who was then def, I believe, in other words, the number two guy in the Pentagon. And in my straight-world job, I was an inspector general and doing all of that, but I got called up I said Can "You go and meet. I'm a lieutenant colonel at the time and said, you, you know, arrange for me to meet with him and which I did alone. Now that's so highly unusual because normally uh, lowly lieutenant colonels do not go see four stars or secretaries without what we call head bobbers. In well, other words, other generals coming around or, shake their head in agreement with whatever you were going to say. Um, but that was not the case. And uh, it was about 12.30 and went up and had a very interesting talk with him. And we were talking about, some of it was about what the Soviets were doing at the time. We were following some of that research. This is, again, the bad old days. And so it was the Soviet Union as opposed to Russia. And uh, so we had an interesting discussion. He says, "Well, who do you work for?" And I told him, "Inspector General." So I went back to my office, and about uh, three to four hours later, the chief of staff uh, from the inspector general's office came in and said, "Oh, tomorrow morning you don't work here anymore." I mean, they had they had moved me just instantly to somebody that he thought would be compatible. And that eventually emerged more with uh, General Subblebine, who was the head of Intelligence Security Command. It did have a remote viewing program. It did have personal interests and in a range of phenomena. And we went off and did some wild, wonderful things there.
0: Now, that program was famously portrayed and given the Hollywood treatment in the book and the movie the, the men who Stare at goats um, that, well,
1: that's... wait, wait, wait! Now, now, I got to roughly.
0: Go, for, please, <laughs> so please the do, yeah.
1: Point with Ronson, as they say, he took this much truth, he wrote this much, and then they made the movie. Yeah. So you've got a tiny fragment of what actual truth was. Um, and it was interesting because when the book came out, it was a book by the same name first. <laughs> And I happened to pick it up and reading it said, damn, that's me. Because he uses our real names uh, in the book. And um, so then I think he was on Coast to Coast or something like that. And talks about, because in the book is, like he's interviewing me. I asked, he said, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I have never met this guy. How can this be true? Now, there was a guy from the UK, John Sargent, who was a filmmaker whom I had met and did meet on a number of occasions and had filmed with. And anyway, Ronson wrote back and he mentioned something so specific about the house. That I said, he must have been here. Nobody would know that with, without knowing it. So I went back and I checked my notes and I found where Sargent was here and had done an interview. And I just said John Lawson, So kind of like he was a gripper. So he just happened to be, you know, sitting by. But he's, uh, in the book, he becomes like the primary investigator or uh, auditor yeah. or whatnot. So um, like I say, I had to admit that uh, he had been there. I apologize. No, was running just a bit today. But That's all uh, right. anyway, um, so yeah, he was there, but it's kind of like somebody overhearing our conversation and saying they're doing the interview as opposed to you or something like that. And um, I did meet to Greg, what's his name, the guy who works with Clooney, uh, and we addressed what's real, what's not real, and that. And I said, "Oh, it's a comedy." We we understood that. But, yeah. So- Take
0: it with a pinch of salt And that's why I say the Hollywood treatment Because I know what it's like That you can you can give one sentence in a whole movie And series of movies comes <laughs> off of that So th- the movie itself If people haven't seen it, for me it's worth watching In terms of a comedy But it's not a historical documentary And if I remember correctly, John At the start of the movie, the first thing that comes up It basically says, more of this is true Than you would care to imagine Or you would even believe And then well... goes into the movie
1: there were aspects of it, yes. You know, remote viewing was a real program. we addressed that. Uh, that, with uh, some of the metal bending that shows up in there. Yeah, I, I was doing that cloud busting. Yeah, we did that. Uh, Bert, the best of my knowledge never tried to run through a wall. That was one of the, you know, funny scenes at the start. And the other thing that I mentioned, because they get into LSD research and I say, not only no, but hell no, but by that time, anybody that was, would have been touching LSD, I mean, you would have lost everything.
0: Let me ask, and you mentioned things like the cloud busting and there was remote viewing, and you, you see all sorts of weird and wonderful things were undertaken. What was the actual goal of the program? You know, you're talking about what, what are the Soviets up to? What, what can we possibly get from this? Was there an objective you set out to achieve with the program itself?
1: Well, which the program are we talking about?
0: Well, just uh, when you we're talking about the setup, obviously of you know the remote viewing program, for example, and you're taking away your whisked away, and you're told from tomorrow well, you don't work.
1: There were several aspects to it. Uh, part of it was research and development. What's you know, can we understand the basics or get a theoretical basis on how it works? The answer to that is no to this day. Uh, but they were doing straight research and development. So part of it was can you do this wow. and the other aspect is because you had guys like joe mcmonichael who were very good naturals actually targeting them against specific uh, targets uh, in, uh, primarily in soviet later it digressed into drug busts and things of that nature now the problem from a scientific perspective is can you come up with a theoretical basis or understanding of how you might access data at a distance. And particularly when you're doing precognitive and retrocognitive kinds of things like transitioning time. Uh, so we don't have a good grasp on that. At the same time, had an operational capability it was going against real world targets and producing actionable intelligence.
0: Something we hear about now is that there are factions within the, the government, especially in the US government, the halls of the Pentagon, that given their religious beliefs, they obfuscate and hinder any potential progress in the study of, of UAP and other phenomena. Is this something you encountered yourself during your time in the military?
1: Well, 35 years before OSAP or HF was in the current program, I had run a similar we called Advanced Theoretical Physics. Uh, The reason for the name is what we call FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act had just come out and there were lots and lots of people asking about UFOs and that but didn't think they would ask about Advanced Theoretical Physics or what for it. So that was the name. Now bottom line is all of the findings that were released, yeah, that's what we knew 35 years ago. I mean, so it really wasn't a huge, the, the main difference was this became a formalized program and I actually got funded. We did not. I had worked for a number of years and when we went forward for funding, it was deemed too much of a risk. Uh, we went to SDI, what you know as Star Wars, the Strategic Defense Initiative and had talked to the commanding general who was running that program, which was the biggest R&D program in the Department of Defense at the time. And I can definitely tell you that fighting space aliens had absolutely nothing to do with with the development of that. And uh, when we got done, I said, well, we'd like to formalize the program and get funding. And it was, well, you got my attention but I can't touch that. If I get caught doing this, you know, they're going, well, they're already coming after us. budget. Budget was so big. One of my favorite things and when I was in the Pentagon with people, I'm going to go find the money. There are no pots of money just sitting around in stalls someplace in the Pentagon. It means I'm going to take it from somebody else's program and, sure. you know, get So it's a zero-sum game all the time. And he was right. They were willing to um, say, if you can tell me what to look for, basically we can incorporate that into algorithms. Uh, But uh, basically nothing further came about from that.
0: Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, ZenCaster's Creator Network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. ZenCaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook red ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's creator network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favorite creators like me. that's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Outside of ATIP and OSAP, which we have now heard about from the last kind 10-15 of years, did you ever hear of any other programmes or attempts to start up programmes, again based on remote viewing or anything you'd been involved in, or was it very much left alone?
1: Not that I'm aware of, but one of the questions always comes up, did it go dark? You know, is there some ongoing program? And my position on that has been, I doubt it. Um, And the reason is that the talent pool was relatively small. Now, I want to differentiate between individual interest, institutional responsibility, which is one of my pet things to look at. That does not mean that there weren't people in the Department of Defense and various agencies going to remote viewers and saying, we look at X, Y, Z. That is very, very different from what we call a program of record, it was a formalized program that had a funding line, had all kinds of oversight and parameters that were established to it, uh, As and that's what... Was true under Stargate and his prior incarnations. Um, but, you know, it's like UFOs, remote viewing, uh, people in the Pentagon have had psychic experiences just like they have, you know, across of all of the population. Um, so, from that, they often develop a uh, thing that says, gee, I'm interested, read books, let me go ask, you know, Joe is well-known, Paul Smith, and, and some of the others, there's an uh, organization called IRVA, the International Remote Viewing Association, uh that I'm founding board member of, but that, those are public, and so from that you can, de- Derived sources that you might choose to uh, to go out. So I, I'm sure that that happens from time to time, but again, that's different from you know the government doing it. One of the things I point out, I just did a recent talk on, on this, and, and the point is, rarely are these programs top driven. I mean, there's something compelling, and therefore it comes down from on high. I said much more likely as individuals who have personal interest and experience and push the the noodle back up the chain of command and get to the point. And especially, we won't get into funding and, and all that, but you have to understand how the funding process works. It's terribly, terribly complex. And you can move certain amounts of money around, there are some discretionary funds, but then there's funding thresholds as you get to bigger and bigger amounts. Then you've got to go to higher and higher levels, and with that comes oversight and just becomes more difficult and more administratively restrictive.
0: So that makes sense, that the smaller you can keep a program with the less people involved and the less budget required, the less oversight you're going to have and the less eyes and ears you're going to have on the program. So you can almost... Get it started, but like you say, keeping that progression going and securing right. that higher funding is much more difficult. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah uh, and, um, probably sounds like a lot, but you can probably muck about under twenty million dollars most of the time and find covers of those individuals or uh, seniors who are, are willing to allow someone. If you remember, the pro- or HF or program came in at twenty two million. Uh, if you look at the remote viewing program, that was kind of around $20 million. But that, again, was a program of record and was, uh, you know, did have some oversight on it.
0: Now, let me ask, John, moving on slightly, Skinwalker Ranch has played a part in your life. And I, am I correct in saying you were, you were working in some capacity for Mr. Bob Bigelow when he acquired the ranch? Is that correct?
1: Well, I was physically with him the day that he actually bought the ranch from Terry. Yeah. Uh, he, he went to a hotel and, and, and anyway, stayed in the hotel. I stayed on the ridge line that night it was the first one to actually spend the night uh, at the ranch after he had acquired it.
0: Now, Mr. Bigelow's a man that twenty million dollars isn't a isn't a large amount of money to him necessarily, but he's got a real passion for the subject and obviously has put in a lot of time and money over the over the years. <coughs> what did you already know yourself about the ranch before it was acquired?
1: Not a lot. I mean, we had heard the stories he had talked to uh, Terry and, and we knew some of the back folklore. <coughs> as far as, you know, all the stuff that's come to light. By the way, it was never Skinwalker Ranch, well, Lions, or Noetics, uh, I'm sorry, NIDS, had the ranch. The title Skinwalker Ranch got uh, attached after um, Bob had, uh, not after he sold it, but uh, after NIDS had had dropped out of it. and it was just the ranch at the time that we were doing it. But some very, very strange things definitely happened there.
0: What particular experiences do you remember happening there? Or you know, were, were others talking about that really stood out to you as being exceptionally strange?
1: Well, oh, I mean, that's one that's so hard. It's because there were so many events that really did happen that were, uh, you know, verifiable. One of the stories that came up uh, early on was one with Terry uh, before we had acquired it. But uh, Terry and his wife were there and they were just developing the ranch and looked out across the field, it was perfectly flat. You could see for quite a ways and here comes a dog paddling up there, and then it got closer. to that's not a dog; that's a wolf. And well, Terry's a pretty big guy. This thing walks up, and wolf's head is, you know, test level on him, which is really big. And says, "Well, somebody must have domesticated a wolf." We get ready to go to work, and he hears this yowling. And what has happened is they had you'd be familiar with ranches, you know the pipe fences around. This thing had reached under was a 600-pound calf there, grabbed it by the snout, and was trying to pull it back uh, under the fence. Well, Terry grabs a 2x4 and hits it, and that just didn't do too much. So he had a 357 Magnum, shot him at point black range, you know, like from me to the computer screen, out of range. Can't miss, and well, that got him to drop the calf, and he went trotting off across the field. Well, Terry had an elk rifle uh, that was there with 258 grain bullets. Very good shot, hits this thing, and stuff, Some of stuff are flying off the uh, the body. It goes on, goes across a creek, comes up on the other side disappeared they went over and picked up the chunks of what would have been meat and it's putrefied now remember it had just come off the body and putrefication normally takes a uh, lot longer so that was certainly one of the war stories uh, one that absolutely happened that was uh, critical was the uh, calving season and. Uh, uh, Terry went out, and what they would do is they would find a newborn, they would tag it and weigh it. <clears> they <throat> tag it to identify it with the mother. And he does that, and he then drives across this perfectly flat, open area, finds another newborn, tags it, weighs it, comes back. Calf one is dead. Not only is calf one dead, of course, the mother is going berserk and all of that but it's been eviscerated and exsanguinated, and you know, most of the innards and the material that had been there were gone. The ear had been sliced off the one that had the tablet and looked like it's clean as a laser cutter or something like that. We got notified immediately and uh net Uh, who was our DVM, was up there by that day. And uh, we looked at all the possibilities of uh, how do animals kill, you know, bears, big cats. And there are some of those in the area, but you gotta remember this is broad daylight, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, (laughs) between 10 and 11 in the morning. Um, Made absolutely no sense whatsoever that, you um, know, how could you do that? Now, uh, the path phrase by the skeptic was, oh, the blood just went into the ground and was absorbed. So in fact, I talked to the guys up in the ranch and said there was a slaughterhouse nearby. So they went and got buckets of blood and came back and went to another place and you poured it on the ground. And weeks later, you would look and say, blood was poured on the ground here and you did not see any of that, you know, near, near the calf. Um, yeah, the story is just going on and on. And uh, uh, one of my favorites had to do with, um, uh, we were, had the ranch instrumented. Brandon you know, Kubel, who now has it, has much more instrumentation than we did, but we had cameras there that were facing uh, out towards the west. And there's one in which you had let's say camera one here, camera two is in front of it, and both facing, you know, to the west. And we had an incident where we came and we know when the incident happened because these things had wires coming down, went underground back into the trailer where everything was being recorded. Because what would happen is we'd watch it and then we would we had guys that was their job was just to review the videotape. Well, in front of camera too, the one that's out in front, the wires have been pulled off. It's about 20 feet high. Uh, the wires had come down the length of the pipe and you had about half a roll of duct tape. And if you ever work with duct tape, you know how sticky that stuff is and how it's almost impossible. Yeah, that's all missing. Uh, also, there's about a three-foot chunk of wire that's missing from it. In addition, you've got um, uh, the PVC, what would happen when we into under the ground at PVC protecting it, the U-clamps, the PVC has been pulled loose. Now, because of when the thing was pulled loose, we know when the event occurred. And when you went back and you look at the tape, well, it turns out, on camera one that's looking at camera two, at the time of the incident it just so happened that the cattle, the working ranch, happened to be milling around that, you know, the post that the camera was on, and they don't move, and what we know is that if anybody approaches the cattle, they scatter automatically. So the point there is what should have been on film totally wasn't, yet this extensive amount of damage definitely occurred. We know when it occurred. It should have been on camera, but wasn't.
0: Was there a working theory as to what was causing this? Because it's fascinating when you hear about these different events that happen at the ranch, but they almost seem at times very immature and childish.
1: Um, and the short answer is no. And one of the problems is you have these, so many different phenomena that are ongoing. And, and uh, I came up with something that I called precognitive sentient phenomena. I, I refer to it as an it, just because I have no way to explain what it might be. But as I told the folks on uh, you know, the Skinwalker program, you are not in charge. It is in charge and it decides what you're gonna do. And then when I said pre precognitive, it seemed to know how we were going to respond before the event occurred. And yeah, we go ahead and oblige that and follow it from the way you would, you know, any scientific investigation. And then what would happen is continually more. So oh, you like that? Try this. Then you get something t- totally different.
0: So it seems with the ranch, it's very much a case of the best we can do, in a sense, is observe. And the, the consequence of that is, is very random and hard to predict. Were there any experiments or any, any tests carried out that did provoke a stronger reaction than normal?
1: Well, yeah, it, it provoked and like I say it seemed to know how we were going to investigate before we thought of it and with, like I say it just always kept one step ahead
0: and was there ever a time where the reaction was frightening
1: no uh, was it frightening no it didn't scare the people uh, there are some who seem to be more sensitive to the phenomena than others, and if you watch the secret of the Skinwalker Ranch, they've had several people who have experienced physical injuries that they do attribute uh, back to it. Most of which cannot be uh, explained. Personally, I have not had that experience, and I was back up when we filmed the. Uh, three session that actually just aired you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I never felt fear in that. Um, it was one of our guys who, in fact, they had seen, they were out there in the old homestead area that people watch the program will, will know about. And there's a whole bunch of Russian olives uh, trees out there. And they were watching, and they could see something go through. And all they didn't use the program. And I said, "Was it was like Predator, if you remember Predator movie, when, when the Predator would it would just kind of you'd see distortions, yeah, but not the creepy crawler him, himself. But you would get the uh, distortion, and so that was sort of what was described. And a message that came again telepathically: We are watching you." Well, there wasn't any explanation of where we or what they're watching for or anything like that. But it was a clear message that was imparted.
0: What are your thoughts on the work being done? You mentioned Brandon Fugel and his team. What are your thoughts on the work being done now? Not sure I
1: follow the question.
0: So, compared to the time where you worked on the ranch, you know, or you were involved with the ranch with Mr. Bigelow, do you feel Brandon and his team are carrying out the experiments in a way that they are going to progress the the investigations?
1: Well, I, I think they're doing, I mean, you seem to be prepared to put a lot more money into it and really follow up on it. Um, I'm not very optimistic they will find a solution, I think yet... This keeps morphing and, and staying ahead uh, but they do, obviously, see things that uh, are very unexplainable. And uh, I do think the climate, obviously, it, it is not, you know, concentrated, well it's concentrated in the area, but it's not, you know, confined to sure. the parameters from, you know, where the ranch is the whole area. And this has been going on for decades to centuries. So areas, And there are other places in the world that have you know, similar kinds of phenomena. This is just one where individuals have picked up on this, or instrumenting and documenting uh, in ways that uh, others have, have not... Uh, capture the imagination, so to speak.
0: You you mentioned those other places around the world where you have these areas of high strangeness, maybe more of a concentration. Have well, you managed to get to these yourself?
1: Yeah, no, I I'd recommend YouTube. There have I been mean, a plethora of you know videos that are up from different places of people putting it out. And the difference between the ranch and what Bob and Brandon are doing is willing to put the resources necessary into doing these kind of experiments. Um, give an example though, I've done a lot of work in Brazil um, and you know have, have written uh, to that, and some of the things we've seen there are sort of equally unexplainable. The difference there's two differences. one, is nobody's putting a lot of resources in specifically studying the kind of thing. You also got to remember Brazil's a really, really big place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most people have no idea how big the country is. Um, but having said that, there, there's a difference that I think is critical and applies to many of the things we have discussed and will discuss. Now, the people that I've dealt with are at very high levels in government and industry and whatnot, highly educated and in traditional institutions that are very akin to Western universities. None of them are actual Western universities, but but that clearly comes from a materialistic point of view, which dominates Western education. Having said that, throughout the country, you have a general acceptance of spiritism. And so they are used to incorporating. What I find interesting is people, again, educated with a Western materialistic viewpoint who inculcate uh, spiritism views and don't have any problem with that that what I would like to say is, in the West, I've dealt with shamans uh, all over the world, but the idea of the real world and the spirit world, like those are separate and distinct, as opposed to, you know, the shamans would see it, much more of a continuum that moves uh, seamlessly uh, between them. So I think there's a huge difference in worldview, and that's very important, as to how you address many of these topics.
0: It certainly seems especially in the Western world that that connection to the spiritual is something we've lost over time and, and as you say when you hear about these other cultures that still have that connection that they can see it as being one and the same and it makes that understanding or belief in different phenomena much more palatable doesn't it
1: well let me give you a specific example. We were in West Africa going uh, to Buddhist ceremonies and first of all voodoo is not a religion per se it's an entire way of life and it's inculcated in everything so that when you went out their idea of spirits and and everything just permeates everything so if you found fruit you would find wild pineapples or whatever that you're going to pick you would ask permission you know that's let's say you know even you know, in this case, vegetative objects, and others have spirits and spirit related to it, so you have this interaction with it. Um, this is true in many, many places in the world, and yet we're, Western view seems to be very isolated, very much very narrowly focused on materialism. When we look for the God particle, the assumption that you know, cut things into smaller and smaller pieces, and soon we'll get to you know the. I just noticed they're about to start the uh, large hadron collider again. We put billions of dollars into that, whereas the rest of the world, you know, their their world view is very different. One of them has done a lot of work in Africa. We've been in North, South, East, West Africa, and point is I forget the exact numbers, but you know how many doctors and other medical people that you have in these western you know Europe and, and America in much of Africa, you will have one medical personnel, not necessarily a doctor, but you know a nurse or a practitioner or something for ten thousand people, therefore. When you're going to deal with things like illness, you're going to approach it a lot differently. You're not going to have uh, access to allopathic medicine, lots of drugs, and things like that some areas you do, but for much of the continent you don't. The other aspect there is most Americans have no idea how big Africa is. I've got a map. You know, I used to give presentations on Africa itself, but literally wrote the book on it, but uh, the point was you can take basically all of the continents and fit them into Africa. You know, we're all populated. With, I mean, it's huge.
0: I want to ask, John, uh, NASA are now launching their own albeit with very small funding, independent investigation into UAP. What is your take on, in 2022, NASA getting further involved in the study of UFOs? Welcome to the club. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, UAP, And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see.
1: like a hubdown designed by Charles, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an
0: issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a Meditate a game of
1: with- I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Mike, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the
0: elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head was weird and everything was red. They helped out my boys, they thought this was noise, they thought it was a dream, they thought it was my toys, they thought it was my problems and they think I should scare therapy and I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me.
1: Your life.